Read God's word in James 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool, Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you, and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever will keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and By works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. We read the word of God this far. The basis of this and other passages of scripture call your attention to the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 24. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and any future life? This reward is not of merit, but of 
grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved saints of Jesus Christ, the scripture passage that we read is the classic passage that Rome uses to defend its teaching of justification by faith and works. Rome says that the initial conversion of a man or woman, the initial turning to Christ, is a matter entirely of the grace of God, although even there it will redefine grace, but of God's grace and not of man's works, but that subsequently the justification that we have is a matter of both faith and works. Now Rome makes another step in confusing justification with sanctification. If you were to ask, well, what is justification? What are these terms we're talking about? You learned in Lord's Day 23 that justification is the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to you and to me by a true and living faith. God does this imputing. If you ask a Roman Catholic, what is justification? He or she, if he is answers as he was taught, will say, well, that's the grace of God in you making you more holy, making you able to do good. And the Reformed believer says, just a minute, that's sanctification. So Rome confuses justification and sanctification also. Therefore, by making that confusion and that switch, Rome's idea is that God gives you and me the grace to do good works, then we do them. Then God looks on them and says, that was good. You have righteousness. You've earned a little of your own because it wasn't near enough. I'll give you Christ also, but yours and Christ together. And if you say to a Roman Catholic, now where in the world? In all of the scriptures, do you find a notion like that? They will point you to James 2, verse 24. And the passage we read in general. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. The Reformed, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the scriptures we contend take quite a different view. You've just been taught from Lord's Day 23 that we are righteous by faith alone. That that righteousness again is the perfect, the sufficient, and the complete righteousness of Jesus Christ, of somebody other than you and me, that becomes mine. And I need it to become mine because I am a sinner. Driving home the point of justification by faith alone, as set forth in Lord's Day 23, the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 24 asks the question, what then about our works? How do they relate to salvation generally is a question that comes up. And the Heidelberg Catechism will return to that also in the 32nd Lord's Day. But very specifically for this morning, how do your works relate to your justification? That's the question that Lord's Day 24 asks. And the answer, in a nutshell, is this. I am not justified on account of my works. They don't contribute the least iota to my salvation or to my justification. But... Lest that lead you to conclude that therefore there are no such thing as good works or no need to bring forth good works. Remember, it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. The righteous will bring forth good works. I'm going to demonstrate the reformed view, especially from James 2 this morning. 
where it isn't just that we're left scratching our head about James 2. The, 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 Rome uses it wrong, we know that. We're not quite sure what to make of it, but we know what it doesn't mean. No, that's not enough. We're going to see from James 2 that the instruction of the Holy Spirit in that chapter is consistent with what we are taught in Lord's Day 24. It must be. It is. It must be. Because, first of all, when we look at James 2, we're not just looking at what James said. We're looking at what the Holy Spirit said. And the same Holy Spirit who inspired James 2 also inspired Paul to write in Romans 3 verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified. And again in Galatians 2.16, Knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. For by the works of the law there shall no flesh be justified. What does the Holy Spirit mean in James? When he writes as he does, he cannot be contradicting himself. Now as we approach this doctrine this morning... In order to drive home that this becomes your confession and mine, I don't just title the sermon Justification and Good Works or the role of works in our salvation. But let's take as our starting point that you and I are righteous in Jesus Christ. So, how do you assess your works? That's the question. That makes the eye of the 23rd and 24th Lord's Days very personal. How do you assess your good works? How do I assess mine? Is our assessment consistent with what the scriptures teach and what we have before us in the 24th Lord's Day? The righteous man's assessment of his good works is the title of the sermon. Notice first that they are evidence of true faith. Second, that they are defiled with sin. And third, that they are rewarded by grace. We begin then with what's taught in answer 64, even though it ends the Lord's Day and really sums up the entire section on the faith of the child of God. Does not this doctrine make men careless and profane? Is it even possible that we're going to set forth a doctrine? In this case, the doctrine of justification by faith alone that gives you, if you're a young person or if you're an old person, an excuse to leave church this morning and say, I just heard that Christ's righteousness is mine and no one else's and therefore I'm going to go sin. Why not? I'll get more righteousness if I go sin. Doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. It is impossible. that Those who are implanted in Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. It's important to note at the outset that the Reformed do not deny the existence of good works. It is a mistake that some make as they want to steer so clear of Rome, which teaches that we're justified also by our works, that they might say there is no such thing as good works. But that idea does not square with Scripture also. If you were to do a search in your computer or online Bible program of the term good work, or put the plural to it, good works, in the King James Version, you would find 28 instances of the use of the term not once. Setting the term aside and saying, don't you dare think of such a thing. But in every instance, referring to actions that the child of God performs out of a heart of faith, in accordance with the standard of the law of God and to the aim and goal of the glory of God 
in every instance, we cannot say there is no such thing as good works. It was Jesus himself who said, let your light so shine before men that they may behold your good works. It is Dorcas who is commended in Acts 9 verse 36 for her alms deeds and good works. And there's that beautiful passage in Ephesians 2 verse 10. You are recreated in Jesus Christ unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Then when you turn to 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, you'll find often that the phrase is used. We cannot say there is no such thing as good works. The Reformed believer says, I do. Bring forth fruits of thankfulness, and we may call them good works. The question is, but why the term good? And the answer is not anything to do, first of all, with how well I did it, with how well motivated I was with how well I adhered to the law of God. But the answer is, first of all, to do with this fact, those works proceeded out of a heart of true faith. Not just now a heart that leads to a mouth that says, I believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but a heart in which Jesus Christ lives. For it is not possible that one who is united to Christ should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. And likewise, it is not possible that one should be justified, that the righteousness of Christ imputed to him or her, but not renewed and sanctified. And what makes this impossible is the way God works. He never gives half of grace to his people. The grace he gives consists not just of the forgiveness of sins. That's a beautiful part of it. But it consists also of a complete transformation and a renewal. And therefore, those who are united to Christ by a true and living faith, by which faith the righteousness of Christ becomes theirs, are also renewed and transformed, and the life of Christ is implanted in them And it is not possible that the life of Christ, the new man in you or me, should not show itself. That's the point the Heidelberg Catechism is making. Why do we call them good? It is our new man. It is Jesus Christ in us that is the source of these works. That's the basis for the child of God to say, as we are now in this first point, that my good works are evidence of true faith. My good works, those that I perform by the grace of God in the power of Christ, that show Christ is in me. They are evidence of true faith. They're not just evidence that I'm a Christian as opposed to a Muslim or as opposed to a Jew. When I use the word faith now, we mean again, fundamentally, the bond that unites me to Jesus Christ, which bond I did not implant in myself, but God himself sovereignly implanted by his grace. When you see yourself beginning to obey the law, when you see yourself saying, I have sinned, I have sinned in the word I spoke about this or the person or that person. That was wrong of me. I'm going to confess that sin to God. I'm going to seek forgiveness of the blood of Christ. I'm going to seek the power to live better. When you find yourself doing that, you say, Jesus Christ lives in me. There is no other explanation for these works that I would bring forth. At the same time, 
These works are evidence that that life of Jesus Christ bears fruit. What the catechism is saying is as much the same as what a farmer understands when he goes and sows his field, plants his field, or you if you planted your garden this spring. You didn't just do it because you had extra seed and the seed had to go somewhere and you were sick of seeing the seed sitting on this shelf in your garage. The reason why you planted seeds is you intended to get tomatoes and beans or flowers. You knew there would be fruit. And therefore, God, in implanting the life of Jesus Christ in us, does so with this intent that they bring forth fruit. I know. I obey the law of God. I have been implanted into Christ by a true and living faith and that I'm beginning to live a life of thankfulness to God. It's from this viewpoint that we can approach James 2. The language he uses, ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only, is explicit. There's a reason, you see, on the surface of it, why Rome goes there right away. But there are two points that we're going to make today to show that that is not what James is teaching. That is the idea that we are justified both by faith and our own works is not what James is teaching. The first consideration is the context in which the words appear. I read the entire chapter of James 2 to underscore this. For even though verse 14 begins that section that Rome latches on to, the context already begins with verse 1 of the second chapter. With James rebuking Christians because they are not living the way Christians ought to live. And what's his assessment right away of the fact that they show partiality to the rich and that they despise the poor? And that they say they honor the law even though in some respect they offend or sin in verse 10. What's his assessment in summary? It starts at verse 1 already. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. There is something wrong with your faith. It doesn't say, first of all, there's something wrong with your justification. He doesn't say there's something wrong with your theology. There is something wrong with your faith. And so in the context, he underscores, that is the first 13 verses, he underscores that the issue at stake is how faith manifests itself. Now when we turn into verse 14 through 26, we see a number of statements that show that really... James' main point does not regard justification, but faith. Verse 14, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? And he goes on to say, can faith save him? But the point is, don't think that simply believing is all you need to do. Isn't that a pertinent warning for you and for me? To believe is important. It's essential. There's no question about that. And yet, there can be such a thing as intellectual faith. That is just, I have the knowledge, so I guess I'm a believer. There can be such a thing as a faith that says... I'm a member of a church that's sound. It teaches reformed truths. It's orthodox. So I guess I'm a believer. And so it's pertinent to you and to me this reminder that faith alone, that is just an intellectual faith, is not enough. In fact, if our faith is only intellectual, it is not true saving faith. That's the point that James is making throughout the text. And so in verse 17, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. 
And he repeats that in verse 20. Faith without works is dead. And again in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. His point is not that faith needs works to help faith work. His point, rather, is that the faith by which we are saved is a living faith. It's not just an intellectual thing, just a dead thing, just a, a concept, an abstract thing. It is the life of Jesus Christ in me which brings forth works. The works do not work alongside of my faith to justify me. Rather, those works are evidence that my faith is a true and living faith. And so there's one more statement James makes in verse 22. Seest thou, he says of Abraham, how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. This is the real relationship between faith and works. It isn't justification, first of all, that's in view here, but faith. By works was faith made perfect. That's still an odd phrase. What was there imperfect about faith? What is there about my works that make faith perfect? Is the suggestion that I still have to do something in order to supplement God's work of working faith, transforming me, putting the new life of Christ in me? And the answer is no. That's not what the Holy Spirit is saying. But this. You saw faith. You saw Abraham's faith come to its fullest expression. And he brought his son Isaac to the altar and said, Isaac, going to get on the altar, I'm going to kill you, but the Lord is going to raise you from the dead. You saw Abraham's faith come to its fullest expression, faith made perfect in the sense of faith showing itself as fully as it could. That, beloved, must be your and my assessment First of all, of our works of gratitude. Without them, how can I say I'm a believer? Without them, what good does my book knowledge do? The very purpose of doctrine is that it accord with godliness and serve as a foundation for a Christian life. That's Paul's opening statement in his epistle to Titus and elsewhere. And therefore, for you and for me also, to be a Christian is not just to say, I know certain things or I was raised in a certain kind of mentality and with certain uh, presuppositions as to what's right and what's wrong, but to be a Christian is to take all that and say, now I'm going to serve my Lord. He worked his life in me. But in order to work that life in me, he first took my sins upon himself. He went to the death of the cross. He endured the wrath of God against sin. And he earned for me life. And favor with God when what I had was death and I'd fallen out of favor. And he arose the third day to bestow these gifts upon me. I am eternally thankful and sincerely thankful. I will live unto him. And when you and I say that, our faith is bearing the fruit. God intended it to bear. And others around us are saying, yes, that man, that woman, that child is indeed a Christian. So three points of application as we bring this first point to the close. And the first is that we understand that it is not only our calling to bring forth good works, but it is inevitable. That is to say that too, 
is going to be the grace of God in us. Let us then look to the law of God, which we heard read this morning, and seek and pray for God's grace to love it and to keep it. But in the second place, you and I also must examine our lives, lest we give indication of thinking that just to know is enough. Just to know is not enough. And then a little love is not enough. A little work is not enough. Not to show thankfulness now for all that Christ did for us. It requires obedience to the entire law. James made that point again, verse 10 and 11. It's not enough to say, well, I'll keep nine of the Ten Commandments. Love for and obedience to the entire law is required of me. But thirdly, I started with the end of the Lord's day. It's important that we realize that though for the rest of our life, we strive with all that is in us to keep the law of God Perfectly. And therefore, the righteous among us say, I do do good works. At the same time, we say, They don't contribute the least toward my justification. I must look to Christ and to his righteousness alone for my righteousness before God. That leads us then to the second point. And it's really the the foundational point of the Lord's Day. It's the one with which the Lord's Day begins in verse 62. Our good works are defiled with sin. Why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? The catechism views at least two scenarios. One is that I'm righteous by my good works entirely and completely. So that my good works are the whole of my righteousness. The other is that my good works contribute to, they add to, they're not the whole of my righteousness. Christ's righteousness is needed, but mine supplement his. Why cannot our good works be the whole or part? And the answer brings you back to what you learned in Lord's Day 23. When Adam fell into sin, brought depravity on you and on me, God didn't say to Adam, and he did not say to the human race, well, now you botched it, and there's no way you can get yourself out of this mess. I'll have to do it for you. Just try your hardest. That isn't what God said. He didn't say to Adam, oh, you're wearing coats of uh, uh, skins, uh, fig leaves rather, aprons of fig leaves. What you need to do is go kill an animal. But what God did is make clear to Adam and to Eve that any righteousness that would become theirs would be 100% provided by God. And so he clothed them himself with coats of skins. He gave to them the promise of a savior, a seed of a woman who would come. God was saying again and again, the righteousness now that you need to be restored to favor with Jehovah God is not one you can bring forth in your own power or of your own will. It is entirely going to be a gift of God in Christ. And then the answer adds, our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. So the perspective now of Lord's Day 24, when it comes to the righteous man, the converted child of God, assessing his life of gratitude, is that at every point, you and I are saying, I do strive to obey in gratitude, but even when I do, 
that cannot merit with God. It's defiled with sin. If you examine yourself and I myself, we spend time thinking over what we've done this past week. We can illustrate the point. Assuming now that the grace of God in us worked so powerfully that we did desire to live as brothers and sisters of Christ and redeem children, that we did in this way or that way serve our neighbor, that we did in this time or at that time come to God in prayer and in devotion, we have to say, but while I was praying, my thoughts went somewhere else. That good work of prayer was imperfect. As I was listening to the sermon, as I was praying with the congregation, as I was singing the songs, I was thinking of yesterday. I was thinking of tomorrow. That's not me. That is ultimately me by nature. But we're talking about the new man, the renewed man in Christ still says I cannot keep the law of God perfectly may be that I gave a gift to my neighbor, a gift that satisfied their need, but there was a little part of me saying, I want that neighbor to think well of me. My best works are defiled and polluted with sin. Isaiah said it this way in chapter 64, verse 6, all our righteousnesses, the best works we could bring forth, are as filthy rags. James James 2, the passage we read. You kept the whole law very well in nine points. There's one. You cannot be righteous on account of your own works. Now here's the problem. Didn't we learn that those good works proceed from the life of Christ in us, and that that faith of which we're speaking is first of all a union with Christ? And we are now saying, are we, that those good works are polluted and defiled with sin? Is there something deficient about the life of Christ? Of course the answer is no. And the very thought really is blasphemous, isn't it? So what explains that though I have this life of Christ, my perfect Savior in me, that I'm going to do works that are defiled with sin? What explains it? And the answer is very simply this. Alongside that new man, which is Jesus Christ, is that old man, which is me, as I stand related to Adam. I am not yet in heaven. I am not yet glorified and perfectly sanctified. There is still in me, on the one hand, the life of Christ, but it operates through a body of sin. And that's going to explain why even my best works in this life are defiled and polluted with sin. Therefore, our good works cannot be either the part or the whole our righteousness before God. It's really absurd to think it could be, isn't it? The debt which comes on me on account of my sin, my sin in Adam and then my own sin, is an infinite debt. And here and there and then, I just made a small beginning, not even a perfect beginning, but a small beginning of obedience to God. How can such a small beginning contribute to the taking away of an infinite debt? It cannot be. But I think that sometimes. It's good that you and I reminded of this Because I do sometimes imagine that the thing I just did was so good that God himself is pleased with me on account of what I have done. And in this way, pride shows itself 
life of the child of God. To take to heart this teaching of the scriptures that our best works are defiled with sin requires us always, constantly, to be examining our motives, our purposes, our goals. We are quick to congratulate ourselves on a good deed we did, but slow to see how deeply ingrained sin is and how even that deed was polluted with sin. It requires you and me then to make the confession in prayer to our Lord and Savior himself and the triune God that we are of ourselves still unworthy of the least of his blessings. And if it were up to us, if God were to have said, I made you righteous, now it's up to you to do your best, we would be in hell again and in the devil's clutches in a split second. This becomes the grief of the child of God. This is why the apostle himself said in Ephesians 4, uh, rather 7, he grieved because in him dwelt the body of sin. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is why you and I look every day to Jesus Christ and not just say his alone, but look at his righteousness as being unblemished. The righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers our sins is something that he manifested in his person, his whole life, and everything that he did, in all the words that he spoke, it culminated, did this demonstration of righteousness in his death on the cross, but it began in his birth. In his conception, it showed himself when at age 12, he truly was about his father's business. You saw it in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not thy will but mine be done. And he set his face to go to the cross. There you see the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ. My best works are defiled with sin. But his best works, which he brought forth his whole life long, were perfect in the sight of God. You can find no other man whose righteousness will cover your and my sins. Confess it. Look to him for it. And believe. Here too, the call of the gospel is appropriate even to the righteous. Those who are believers, believe. Let your faith, your looking to Jesus Christ, your complete trust in Him be a continual, ongoing trust. We must. Our best works are polluted with sin. Is therefore an answer to an objection of Rome again that the Catechism asks in answer and question and answer 63 Do not our good works merit? You've put down good works a bit. You said they're defiled with sin. But don't they merit with God? And the answer is this uh, this reward, this merit. This reward is not of merit, but of grace. I said again, this is a Roman Catholic objection. And that objection starts with recognizing, as you and I have to do again, that the Bible does speak of rewards. Just as we couldn't get around the issue by saying, well, there's no such thing as good works. The Bible speaks of them in a positive sense. Likewise, you and I can't say, no, there's no reward. And even the catechism doesn't go that route. It doesn't say, don't use the word reward. It says there is a reward, but it's of grace. The Bible uses the term reward about 30 times just the word reward, but then there are synonyms also. Wages, recompense, 
The Bible a number of times speaks of rewards. Sometimes the reward of the wicked. That which the wicked will get on account of their wickedness. But many times referring to what God will give the righteous. God told Abraham in Genesis 15.1, I am thy reward. Psalm 127.3 says the fruit of the womb is his reward. Jesus said that though... Those who suffer for righteousness' sake are blessed, for great is your reward in heaven. And again and again, in the Old and New Testament, mention is made of a reward that the child of God looks forward to receiving in life. Now, Rome's logic is, that's clear. And Romans 4, verse 4 says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. The works you do earn then. And the reformed and the scriptures say, no. When the Bible speaks of a reward in the positive sense then, it's saying two things. It's saying, first of all, that there will come a day when you and I enjoy salvation in even fuller measure than we do now. And that will be heaven. There are times when heaven is that reward. But there are other times where the word reward is used to drive home the point that you and I grow in our enjoyment of an experience of and manifesting of the grace of God. We're not stagnant. I'm not a believer today. This is as much strength as I'll ever have. We grow. That's the will of God in the life of his child. And therefore, as we grow in faith and in godliness, we enjoy and experience the blessings of God more and more in fuller measure. That too is what the Bible means sometimes when it speaks of a reward. Notice that James uses the term with reference to both Abraham and Rahab. I'm sorry, he doesn't use the term reward, but he has the idea in mind. Verse 23. Seest thou how faith wrought with Abraham's works, and by works was Abraham's faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And that's part of his reward. That is a part of the grace given to him. He's known as the friend of God. Rahab's reward, he doesn't use the term, but this is the idea of the term as it's used in scripture, is that this Gentile woman is received and brought into the covenant. But all, not of merit, but of grace. It's a reward. It had to be earned. Because it's a gift of grace. It's a, it's a blessing of salvation given to a sinner. It had to be earned. But I did not earn it. And you did not earn it. Christ earned it. Now, young people, when you go to work tomorrow, you work a good long day, and then Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, as many hours as your employer gives you, and then Friday he gives you your paycheck. You can come home and say, I earned this. But when the benevolence collection plate is passed on a Sunday morning and you take some of what you earned and you put it in that plate for the deacons to give to others who by their earnings cannot fully fund all their needs, that person when he or she gets benevolence can say, this is a reward, somebody earned this money. It was the people who went off to work. To me, it's of grace. 
It's a gift. And that's the point here. Christ earned the reward. Was he compelled to give it to you and to me? Was he compelled to share glory, heavenly glory with you and me? Well, he was compelled by the counsel of God. He was compelled by uh, the will of God that he go to the death of the cross in our behalf. But still, when he says to you and to me, brother or sister, share the eternal life that I bought. He's giving you and me a gift of his grace. That's the idea here. This reward was earned by Christ, but his sharing it with me is not of merit, not mine. This brings us back to gratitude. The child of God who understands that he has not so much as merited that all that he has is of God, through Christ, by grace, says. What an amazing God we have. What a righteous Savior we have. How amazing, how moved I am that he channels his grace also to me. And shows also to me, undeserving sinner, his mercy and his love. Are you moved by that? Do you not see now that it is impossible that you and I, thankful for these gifts, will not bring forth fruits of thankfulness? And when we do, we will say, that too is the Lord's grace in me. I could not have done them in my own power apart from his strength. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, drive home the points that are brought to us here so that they're not just a matter of our head, but they become our confession. And we live in accordance with them. And we say that thou art a good, a gracious, and a merciful God. And we renounce any effort of our own by which we might be justified or increase our righteousness in thy sight. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.